Today on Between the Lines, the story of how one man and one invention changed the course of scientific research with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Hilsick. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Michael is one of the most respected columnists in the country. Each week, his writing for the LA Times has captivated readers. Now with his book, Big Science, he chronicles how one man and his colleagues changed the course of science and the revolutionary effect it had on us all and still does. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was- You do, need, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the person Michael, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to start. This is big science, but as you say in the book, it starts off as a solitary effort made by one man in particular, Ernest Lawrence. Right. Well, Lawrence was, he was the right man in the right place. Uh, I think he was fortunate to have started his career at a moment when small science had sort of run out its, its string. Um, the, the great small scientists of physics, Marie Curie, uh, Sir Ernest Rutherford, had gone about as far as they could go in examining the innards of the atomic nucleus with the tools that nature gave them, uh, thimblefuls of radium emitting alpha and beta rays. And, and they knew that something more was going to have to happen, that, that they were going to have to apply human ingenuity for more powerful probes of the nucleus. And that's where Ernest Lawrence came in. Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that it transformed everything almost overnight because where you think of the physicist in particular as a theorist thinking like that, he took it and he was more of an engineering type. He wanted to apply these theories and to do that, he had to come up with a way, as you said, to create so much energy. That's what we're really talking about here. That's true. And uh, his forebear, Ernest Rutherford, had sort of set out the challenge and said, what we need is is equipment that can create 10 million electron volts for a projectile to examine the, the atomic nucleus, but that it will fit in the room. Uh, and it was Ernest Lawrence who actually invented it, an incredibly efficient, effective, compact atom smasher that could do things that, that his contemporaries didn't even envision. Well, he, the, the thing he built was called the cyclotron. And now, just to show you how big science got, if you go in, into Europe, you'll see that Hadron Collider that is what, it's miles in, in diameter, well, isn't it, or something like that? Yes, absolutely. The, the, the first cyclotron that, that Ernest Lawrence designed, it cost him less than $100 in materials, and it fit in the palm of his hand. The Large Hadron Collider, which is this, this great atom smasher uh, it, that's, that's on the border between France and Switzerland, it's in a tunnel that's 17 miles in circumference and cost $9 billion. And yet, at its heart, it's a cyclotron. It's the latest iteration of the machine that, that, that Ernest Lawrence basically could hold in his hand. You know what you bring out, at least in my mind, is when you start talking about big science, it's at first the big 
dollars spent on it, the big amount of power required for it. But you know what? I got the impression big also meant something else. And it's not an impression that I made up. It's because of the way you weave this story. What it also does is it for the first time brings many disciplines of science together. So you bring in the physicist, you bring in the chemist, you bring in biologists, you bring in the medical aspects of it. So it not only is big in the sense of its cost and its scope of what it does, it's big because it broadens the entire field of science. That's right. Lawrence himself had had a very expansive view of of science, and this was part of the departure in American science from the European tradition, which pigeonholed everything. Uh, physicists wouldn't talk to chemists, who wouldn't talk to biologists, and and engineers. They were a whole different group. Ernest Lawrence came out of a tradition where you brought everything together, and I think that was something that was also very. It was also something that was typical at Berkeley, which is where he really made his career, but he understood that to really exploit the power of the machines that he invented and and was building, you really did need everybody else. You needed biologists, you needed medical doctors, you needed chemists to really understand what these phenomena were that were coming out of the equipment. What we're talking about are these machines that are looking at something so small, the only thing that they could actually show people is a meter moving back and forth. That's right. That was uh, <laughs> some of the, the first phenomena of the first cyclotron. You, you had to understand what was going on by deduction because you could not see it. And, and yes, it's sort of a paradox of nature that to really understand the infinitesimal, what, what's going on, not only uh, subatomic particles, but, but the particles that make up those subatomic particles, you need incredibly precise probes, you need higher energies, uh, and it requires more money and more power to get down into those interstices of nature. You know, I had some very famous quantum physicists on the show, and they'll be the first to tell you that even they don't really know what's going on. There is an element of this that is so mysterious that the scientists themselves can't quite explain the phenomena that they believe exists. Isn't that, it's, it's, it's an amazing thought to me. That's absolutely right. And, and in fact, that's what, in fact, got me fascinated with, with physics. Uh, you know, it was an avocation that became a vocation because I was so interested as a reader and, and sort of a, a student of the history of science that I, I kept reading about it. And of course, if you, if you read about this this discipline of physics, you keep coming across the name of Ernest Lawrence, who really launched it. And I couldn't find enough about Lawrence to satisfy my curiosity, so I realized I better write the book myself. Well, you know, at the heart of this, and these are your words, it's an epochal quest for knowledge of the natural world. That's what we're really seeking here, is the ultimate understanding of our existence. Right, and that's the human condition, isn't it? It, It's this quest for knowledge. And people have asked me, uh, you know, have we reached the limits of big science? Has it gotten too expensive to build a machine for $9 billion that, that really just introduces us to the need for a bigger machine that's going to cost more? And I think what will keep big science going, what keeps us all going, is this, this human, this human compunction to know 
what it is that, that our natural world is made of. And that's something that, that, that Lawrence certainly, that was driving Lawrence, it drove his contemporaries, and I think it drives scientists of all disciplines today. Well, one thing you say about him, though, too, was he was able to almost intuitively grasp the results before they happened. He had a sense that something, and he would then make everyone follow in, in, in that thought pattern. Yeah, I, I think there are, there are scientists, there are engineers who have this, this um, unique affinity with, with machines and with the sciences that they're, that they're studying to understand what, what in, in some sense, lies out there and to have a feeling for what it will take to actually see it or learn it or, or understand it. You see that a lot with computer scientists who understand instinctively what a computer can do and what's beyond the capacity thus far of a computer to do. And we certainly saw it with Lawrence. We, you, know, you know, his assistants, his associates would talk about how one of the cyclotrons would be acting up, it wouldn't be working. Ernest would come into the room, he would roll up his sleeves, he would get his hands on the machine, and somehow it would get, it would, it would get fixed. And that was, we see this rarely, but, but we, when we see it, it's, we're, we're in the presence of genius in a way. And in the presence of true heroes, because they realize that they're dealing with A, voltages unknown to mankind, and radiation. And they were known to mankind as being dangerous. In fact, there was a line you give here where they would go to conventions and you'd see guys with one finger, half their face, all. But they didn't, they, they were brave men who knew they were on a mission. And women, by the way, women did play a role in big science. And, and they knew they were on this quest. And that quest, like you says, that you said for, for knowledge, it's unquenchable. Yeah, that's right. Well, they were driven, and I think it's fair to say they were a little foolhardy. And every so often, one of them, Ernest Lawrence's brother, who was an expert in nuclear medicine and a, and a doctor, would come into the lab at Berkeley. He would, he would just be appalled. He, he, he would say, you know, you know the forces you're dealing with can, can injure you. Why don't you have shielding? What, you know, why, why are you working in such close quarters? And he would force them to change it. But the impulse to make the machine work really was so strong that, that often they would leave those, those precautions aside. And like, like my home is held together with duct tape, these machines at first were held literally together with little metal shims and sealing wax. They had, you know, because everything had to be adjusted and they couldn't get it right. So they'd stick a little shim under here, a little wax over here to seal this part. When I was reading that and you're thinking of all this massive energy potential that these guys were, they were crazy, but yet beautiful. Right. Well, in fact, you can look at some of the original cyclotrons, which are still on display and in Berkeley, and yeah, they're encrusted with red sealing wax. They've got wires all over the, all over the place. Um, uh, it took probably about ten years to really build a cyclotron that was that was a beautiful machine that that didn't need all of this jury rigging, and and you know jerry built features. Um, but in the meantime, they made some amazing discoveries. But because of these amazing discoveries, what happens, and here's where some of those unintended consequences come in, besides the bomb, which we'll get into later, but even the fact that now it required industry to get involved with research. So research no longer was for the pure sake 
of research, it became profitable. And not that there's anything wrong with that as they say, but at that time, because research was so collaborative, once something becomes for profit, then it becomes sometimes competitive. So that was an interesting dilemma that I, I believe you say we're still dealing with that on some level. Well, I think we're dealing with it more than ever before. Uh, Ernest Lawrence had to deal with it, although the full consequences of this transition uh, didn't really emerge during his lifetime. But he had to deal with the impulse, the requirement by his patrons who were providing him with all this money, millions of dollars at a time. They wanted his, uh, his discoveries and his inventions to be patented. Now, when Lawrence had entered uh, you know, professional science, patenting was not something normally that a faculty member at a state university would do. But Berkeley wanted him to do it. The research corporation that was providing him with money wanted him to do it. Uh, they wanted to protect his work from, from, from rivals, from encroaching commercialization. Um, and, and we've seen that transition much greater uh, sense in, in modern times where so much is patented that it begins to interfere with the free give and take that science really needs to to blossom. And one of the first people to realize this and and kind of raise the flag is his closest relationship at first, Robert Oppenheimer. And these, you couldn't have had two more opposites as you you say, uh, what the photographic negatives of, of each other. And one was Ernest, the Midwestern mechanical guy, and the other Oppenheimer, the Jewish intellectual and and from Europe, and, and then the whole kit and caboodle that went along with that. And yet they were inseparable because they each provided the other with the means to create what they were about to create because you needed the theoretical physics and you needed this massive engineering. Right. Well, you know, the the relationship between Lawrence and Oppenheimer really is the spine of of the book. It's the spine of the story that I tell because it's that relationship that I think defined so much about American physics during this period where they were working together and becoming famous together. And they started out as, as incredibly close personal friends. In fact, Lawrence's first son, Robert, was named after his close friend, Robert Oppenheimer. And they had this complementary approach to physics. Yes, as you said, uh, Lawrence, you know, he was a master at hands-on experimental physics. His grasp of theory was not always what, what it should have been. Oppenheimer, by contrast, was a brilliant theoretician, probably the most brilliant American physical theoretician that we had at the time, but he was pretty hopeless around machinery. But uh, Ernest would, would, he would discover some phenomenon in the cyclotron. He would march it over to his friend Oppenheimer's office, and Oppenheimer would look at it and explain it almost overnight. Now, toward the end of their lives, they became bitter rivals, which I, which I think is part of the tragedy of this relationship. But, you know, their colleagues spent as much time at the beginning of their careers trying to understand what what brought them together as they did toward the end of their careers, trying to understand what drove them apart. Now, in history, we know Oppenheimer and Teller and Lawrence. They were the people that created the bomb, the atom bomb. And of course, there's so many ironies with that creation. Some of them obvious, some of them, they were all obviously afraid that the Nazis and Hitler would get it. 
The irony there was that Hitler expelled all the Jewish physicists who were the only ones at that time who basically understood what was going on. Then when you get into even America, Berkeley, they only wanted one Jew because they were still some anti-Semitism going oh, yes. on. So they had Oppenheimer was enough. We'll wait for others later. But finally, at least Ernest said, come on, guys, we've got to make this thing work. But then the other part was they realized they built this ultimate form of destruction. So here were men whose desires, all of them, every single one of them was to liberate human consciousness with the understanding of nature at its core. And then this unintended consequence that that really played on all their hearts and minds and souls forever. Yeah, I think this is, in fact, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of Ernest Lawrence's life. And, and, and I hope I've communicated what's fascinating about it uh, in the book, because it really is the heart of the book. Um, Lawrence and his colleagues, uh, they understood at the be- even before Pearl Harbor that the war was coming and that their great fear was, as you said, that the Nazis would discover the bomb. All of these emigre physicists who had come from Germany and Austria and had come to the UK and the US, uh, they felt that the physicists who had stayed behind in the Third Reich were perfectly capable of doing what they were doing in terms of understanding the explosive force of the atom. And they said, if, if Hitler gets this first, the world will hang in the balance. Um, and, and they were driven by this to, to invent the bomb. They didn't really think twice about it while they were doing it. But toward the end of that period, as the bomb was being developed, as we were getting close to, to the point where, where the decision had to be made to drop it and where to drop it, they began to think ahead to, to the fact that they really had brought into being uh, a, a destructive force that was unique, that was something that was more dangerous than science all of science up to then uh, had discovered. And they really did begin to understand that the relationship of scientists and society was going to be irremediably changed by this, that no longer, as James Frank, one of these emigre German uh, physicists, pointed out even before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he said, it, it, no longer is it going to be all right for scientists to just be be cavalier uh, and blasé about the uses to which science, to which society puts our, in, our discoveries, uh, because what we're discovering is more dangerous than all the discoveries of science put together from the past. Well, you know, also, they, they still did realize, because of the interdisciplinary parts, two things that caught my attention that, again, is for the benefit of mankind was all of the isotopes that they found that was now used to cure cancer, even though out of control it caused cancers. It was now used to control cancers, all of those things. And they also, in a, in a way, with this new discipline, they had to really highlight the benefits of it because it's hard to, I'll give you an example, who I didn't realize all the new chemicals of the periodic chart that came because these guys were bombarding the inside of the nucleus and changing it to 
almost like real alchemy. They were creating things out of something that didn't exist before. Well, well, it is alchemy. Uh, 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 I think the, the ancient alchemists would recognize it, but it started with plutonium, which was element 94. Um, and then uh, eventually we got Laurentium, named after Lawrence, and Californium and Berkelium, uh, which are named after uh, his lab. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think the way I put it in the book is that um, big science is all around us to this day. Uh, it's given us uh, new isotopes to, to cure disease, new isotopes that help us diagnose disease. Some of these that were invented in Ernest Lawrence's laboratory in the 1930s are still in use today by modern science. Uh, if we are going to address climate change, we are going to need big science of the, of the kind that Lawrence pioneered. Um, we are still discovering new aspects of uh, the atom, the nucleus, the natural world using machinery that, that he invented. I mean, the, the latest, uh, latest generations. So, uh, and yet big science has also brought us this, this uh, access to these incredibly destructive forces of, of nature that, that mankind never had had before. So, um, I think it was it, it, it was um, Raymond Fosdick, who was the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, an important patron of Ernest Lawrence, who after the war said, it doesn't do us any good to think of science itself or big science as good or evil. It's really all about what mankind, humankind, makes of these discoveries. And, and I think that's important to keep in mind. And you take us full circle with Lawrence because you take us back to small science where he literally, in his garage, basically, I mean, just like the garage bands do and the Apple computer was invented, he decides to turn his physical engineering science to colored television. There was a Lawrence color camera that created the first color TV broadcast, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. There were three Lawrence cameras on the processional route, and they broadcast it to a children's hospital in London. Um, but uh, it wasn't ready to be commercialized uh, quite yet. So, so the technology was, it ended up being owned by Paramount Pictures, uh, which sold it to Dumont, which is a company that doesn't exist anymore, which sold it to Sony, which eventually incorporated that technology in the Trinitron. Now, the subheading on the book is not only big science and Ernest Lawrence, but it says the growth of the milita military industrial complex. And obviously when you're dealing with big bombs and things like that, that's what it is. But it's also the growth of industry itself in science that now gives it another twist because science now almost either comes from governmental grants, but most of it now is coming from industry. And that's big science in it that, again, Ernest started to create. Right, and that's the evolution uh, of, of the big science that he pioneered. W while Lawrence was alive, I think he was able to resist the encroachment of industrial impulses into the science he was doing because he was so focused on basic research rather than applied research. But once the war came, um, the, the relationship between government and industry became much, much closer. Uh, Oak Ridge, which was devised and designed by Lawrence to enrich uranium so it could be used in the Hiroshima bomb, well, that was built by a subsidiary of Eastman Kodak. Uh, 
uh, Hanford, which was the lab that was designed by Lawrence's as associate Glenn Seaborg to manufacture plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb that was built by DuPont. And so, so we begin to see that government is funding these programs, but it's doing it by paying industry to get involved. And then eventually you get to the point that Dwight Eisenhower expressed so much concern about was that this, this interaction of the military and industry was going to reflect their priorities, their individual priorities, and their joint priorities. And the public interest might not be very high on their list. It was their own interests. That, that became more important. And of course, Eisenhower cautioned against it. And I think we can look at his words and say, he, you know, he was a visionary. He could see what was actually going to happen. Yeah, and it, and it couldn't be stopped. And like big science, this is a big book. And I'd like to spend a big amount of time, but our time is up. I want to end with your words. The essential unity of science means that in advance of the horizon of knowledge in any direction, uncovers territory for all the sciences. Thank you, Michael, for sharing your ingenuity with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, and thank you for joining us. Now, before Michael leaves, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from Big Science. Facts could always be retrieved from reference books or recalled through simple laboratory procedures. It was creativity that must be stimulated because that is what opens the doors to the realm of new ideas. I'm Barry Kibrick. Between all the books and between all the procedures, keep that creativity churning and new doors will always open. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.